If you have your Bibles, why don't we go together to Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. We've been going verse by verse through Luke's Gospel together this morning. We're back where we left off in Luke 14, verse 1. If you do need a Bible, you're welcome to lift your hand up. Make sure you have one to follow along in God's Word. Please do not ever take my word uh, without checking for yourself to make sure what the Word of God says is accurate and true. We, we don't ask for much, but bring your Bible when you come to church. That's, that's what we do here. That's what we we'll always do here. So just like a soldier, you don't ever want to be unarmed. Make sure you got your sword with you so you can make sure you know the truth is being spoken to you. Luke 14, what we're actually going to do this morning, if you didn't notice, uh, over to my left here, we have the communion elements up front. We're actually going to share communion this morning together. And what we're going to do is just look at verse 1 down through verse 6. We'll kind of end our study a little bit early and then just enter back into a time of worship and then we'll partake of the Lord's Supper together uh, as a time of our worship this morning. So we'll look at verses 1 through 6, Luke 14. If you're turning there with me, would you stand together with me as I read our text from the Word of God for Bible study? Luke 14, beginning in verse 1. Says, now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. And he took him and healed him and let him go. And then he answered, saying, Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. And Father, would you help us now as we continue in this time of worship? Lord, you said if we draw near to you, you would draw near to us. And Lord, we've come because we want to worship you. We've sang, we've fellowshiped, we've prayed, and we know this is just as much a part of time of worship as we let your living word speak personally and powerfully to each and every one of our hearts exactly the message that you have for us. And Lord, I can't think of a better way to draw near to you than to open your word and to let it speak into our lives a personal and present day message for what you'd say to us. So Lord, would you prepare me and each and every one of us in this room that we might hear your heart this morning and that your Holy Spirit would just bless the Word of God as it goes forth and that he would speak to our hearts and that we would each receive that thing that you would want to say to us. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening, we ask. And we ask now for your Spirit to communicate to us. We pray these things in Jesus' wonderful name. And everyone said... Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, even as in the ocean, there is such a thing as a rip current, they call, which is extremely powerful. And typically a rip current is very strong and too strong even to resist if you're a swimmer. And as a result of the power of that rip current, it typically overpowers and draws a person out into deeper water. As I think about that, I can't help but to compare how I think that one of the most powerful and irresistible forces in the same way in this life is genuine love. That there is something that stronger than hatred, 
stronger than anything else, the power and the current of genuine and sincere love has just an amazing ability to really become almost irresistible in a person's life. And I'll tell you something, the current of Jesus Christ's overflowing love in this world, working, trying to draw people, seeking to call people, is really many a times an irresistible force that always ends up succeeding in the end, no matter how strong people wrestle and resist against it. It's just the power of the love of Christ. And so often the overflowing love of Jesus accomplishes powerful changes in people's lives. Many times it leaves people absolutely speechless. And as we go through this text in front of us this morning, we see this story here of Jesus eating dinner in the home of this Pharisee's house. And we'll see how that reality really ends up illustrating itself here. How the love of Jesus powerfully does incredible things in this person's life who had dropsy. And in the same way, the love of Jesus left the Pharisees and the religious leaders who were trying so hard to resist Jesus because they didn't want to believe in him and they didn't want to follow him. But the power of Jesus' love at the end of it, it just left them speechless. There was just nothing more they could say. It was just that powerful in its influence in the midst of their presence. Now remember... By this point in Jesus' life and ministry, we're within the last few months of Jesus' public ministry before he goes to the cross and dies for our sins and raises again. And by this point in Jesus' public ministry, the Pharisees have positioned themselves really as being very strong opponents of Jesus. In fact, I think it would even be safe to say that the Pharisees were even at this point acting as Jesus' enemies. Now remember, that word Pharisee in its meaning literally means separate ones or separatists is what the term could be translated as. And it's a very clear indication of exactly who they were and what they ultimately represented. They were a very strict religious sect among the Jews and they pledged themselves, the Pharisees, to observe all the facets of of the religious traditions of the elders in Israel that had been handed down and they pledged themselves to observe every facet of those religious traditions to the minutest detail. Remember on occasion Jesus even speaking to them one time talks about how they actually would literally count their seeds. I mean they just were so particular to the smallest detail. And though they started really with very godly zeal, the Pharisees started out with fantastic intentions. If you study the history of how they became a religious sect. They had great godly zeal and good intentions. Unfortunately, they got a little bit off track and ultimately they became very self-righteous and they became extremely hypocritical. They were a religious sect in that day who became nothing more by the time of Jesus' life and earthly ministry of nothing more than kind of professional religious rule keepers. They were obsessed with ceremony they were fixated upon things like ritual and, and keeping religious rites and requirements. And they arrogantly would look down upon anyone else who they felt like did not live on their same level. So as they obsessed on ritual and they were fixated on all these rites and requirements and following codes. And they had really reduced spiritual life to nothing more than just 
observance of religious rules. And they sought to keep them fanatically. And anyone who didn't live the way that they lived, they looked down upon very arrogantly. When people wanted to live for God, they would heap heavy burdens upon their shoulders of codified requirements. And you need to do this if you want to really live for God. And you can't do that if you really want to live for God. And they would heap these heavy burdens upon people. And it reduced spiritual life to nothing more than observing standards of conduct. And sadly... They had missed and completely lost the reality of experiencing sincere love relationship with God. They had replaced relationship with God with just rules that they thought made a person godly. Isn't that interesting? They had replaced relationship with God with just rules that they determined made a person godly. And there are many that still do that to this day. Quite honestly, it's much easier to just follow a few rules in many ways than it is to have genuine relationship with a person and especially with God himself. So the time that Jesus came, when he came emphasizing just sincere relationship with God and sincerely having a love relationship with God because of that reality, it ran so in contrast to the Pharisees and what they represented as religious leaders, Jesus was always rocking the religious boat. And many a times he would disregard observing their religious traditions and he would irritate the Pharisees to no end. And as a result, they were constantly challenging Jesus. They were always criticizing Jesus. And they had positioned themselves as opponents and, as I said, almost enemies. And over the years of his ministry, Jesus experienced tremendous resistance from the Pharisees. We've seen this in Luke's Gospel already. Back in Luke chapter 6, verse 7, it says the scribes and Pharisees watched Jesus closely whether he would heal on the Sabbath that they might find an accusation against him. Luke tells us in chapter 11, verse 53 and 54, that there as Jesus spoke these things to them, it says the scribes and Pharisees began to oppose him fiercely and to cross-examine him about many things, seeking to catch him in something he might say so that they might accuse him. And then, of course, we just saw last week at the end of chapter 13 how they came to Jesus really saying to them, hey, get out of here. Get out of here because Herod wants to kill you. And again, they were trying to just chase Jesus off and push him outside of the will of God for his life. Now, this is important because it lays a proper foundation for what we're about to look at this morning. Understanding this is who the Pharisees were and this was the level of resistance they had against Jesus, really lays a good foundation for our story this morning. Look with me again back in verse 1. It says, Now it happened as Jesus, look what it says, went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread, it says, on the Sabbath that they watched him closely. So the scene opens with what? Jesus having accepted a dinner invitation on the day of prescribed worship for a Jew. It tells us again it was the Sabbath day. And remember the Sabbath day was that day God had designated for the Jews to rest and be refreshed. And it was also the day that they were to give focus to worshiping God. And they were to come together at synagogue for worship. And it was very cultural. It was very customary after synagogue worship that they typically would go after the synagogue service back to someone's home and celebrate a meal together and families would spend time together eating. This was very typical. And notice here in verse 1, take notice, who is hosting this particular meal? 
It tells us not just a Pharisee, but it says it was actually one of the rulers of the Pharisees that invited Jesus to eat bread. Now, the term eat bread simply is a reference to sharing a meal together. It's the way they would share meals together. There usually were uh, sauces and different dipping things that were out, and you would break off a piece of bread and, and dip in, and they you know, didn't have double dipping rules back then. You would just, just kind of, it was just a very, that's why I remember eating bread together with someone, they took as a very intimate thing. Because they believed, hey, when you eat together with someone, you notice in the Bible there's many references to eating together with individuals. And the Pharisees would be so angry that Jesus would eat with prostitutes and tax collectors and drunkards. And, and they would be, how could he eat with such people? Because in their mind, when you ate together, you became one together. Because you were partaking of the same loaf of bread and the same thing that's nourishing you is nourishing me and we're dipping in the same bowl. Again, we're sharing germs and we're actually, there's a sense of oneness. We're becoming one as we're sharing these things together in an intimate setting. So meals were very intimate. And here is Jesus, take note, being invited by one of these rulers of the Pharisees to this house for a dinner together. And notice the Holy Spirit in verse 1 clearly identifies the exact reason why Jesus was invited. Verse 1 says that they invited him, the end of the verse says, and they watched him closely. They watched him closely. Now Luke uses that term on another occasion in the book of Acts, that term to watch closely in the Greek. And in the book of Acts he uses it how they would stand outside of the gate watching for the Apostle Paul, waiting him for him to come out because they wanted to catch him and they wanted to kill him. So the term that Luke uses there, to watch closely, in the language literally indicates from the Greek to scrutinize one's behavior with malicious intent to harm someone. This is how they were watching Jesus. They were scrutinizing his behavior with malicious intent to harm him. In other words, they don't want to necessarily spend time with Jesus and to have some fellowship together, they want to just observe him closely because they want to see what's he going to say. What's he going to do this time? And they're just scrutinizing and watching him because they're looking for a fault because they want to find grounds for further accusation against Jesus. Now, I don't know if you can relate. Have you ever felt, maybe before, like you were invited to spend time with someone and you kind of sense the whole time that you're like on trial when you're spending time with them? Maybe you've been invited to meet somebody for a cup of coffee or to go out to dinner or you get the sense almost when you're talking with somebody that the whole time you're spending time with them, you almost sense like you're on trial and they're sort of just evaluating everything that you're doing and, and they're kind of looking to see what you're going to say. And, and I've been in situations before where you can tell that people even ask certain questions. You can tell they're asking a question just to see what kind of response they're going to get, almost maybe to bait you in a sense. And I'll tell you something. As Christians, we should just recognize, especially as representatives of Jesus, that on occasion this is going to be a part of our experience. I find that as believers, sometimes people who are not Christians, in a sense, whether they're conscious of it or not, they're just kind of testing and trying and seeing if you're the real deal or not. So they want to see if you're the real deal. And in some sense, as Peter says, we should always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. To some 
extend, I don't think it's necessarily a, a bad thing on occasion when somebody's not a believer and they're trying to see a little bit, but that's going to be a part of our experience. Now, sometimes you can tell, too, that they're just trying to trip you up and they just want to see you make a mistake so they can say, see that? You're a hypocrite. You're a religious phony. I knew you would laugh at that joke, or I knew you'd eventually say something like that. And, and it's, it's a challenging thing, but that's why the Bible encourages us in Colossians chapter 4, it says, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, that is outside the faith, who haven't made a commitment to Jesus yet. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. It says, redeeming a time, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each one. See, my life and my words and my behavior and action, I need to realize are intended to be a living testimony for Jesus. That's why Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and they glorify your Father in heaven. We are to be witnesses. And because we are witnesses, guess what? Just like Jesus, sometimes we're like kind of on trial. And people are watching us and they want to see. And we want to walk in victory in those occasions so that we leave people instead speechless regarding their reasons to not want to believe or not become a Christian. I want through the victory and power of Jesus Christ in my life on those times like Jesus where at the end people are just scratching their heads speechless going, man, I guess this is real. And I guess I am wrong. In the same way that Jesus left his opponents speechless when they couldn't find something to find fault against him. So we know that this Pharisee does not invite Jesus because he's trying to give some hospitality or an effort of reconciliation. Instead, this is just an intended plot that he has set up for Jesus to be discredited or to be taken down so that he could shipwreck Jesus once again, as the Pharisees were always trying to do. Now, with that understanding in mind, it is amazing to me to consider Jesus having already had prior encounters with these Pharisees, Jesus knowing how these Pharisees feel about him as opponents and almost strong enemies, and Jesus knowing all things because he's God. They weren't pulling the wool over his eyes when he got invited for dinner. That Jesus knowing all these things still chooses to do what? Accept the invitation and to go over that Pharisee's house for dinner. Now, I don't know about you, but that shows me a powerful demonstration of the overflowing love of Jesus. That here you see Jesus, even those who repeatedly treated Jesus wrongly, those who clearly intended his downfall, instead of Jesus avoiding them because he just had animosity in return towards them or a bitterness in his heart towards them because these snakes are always trying to take me. Instead of him in anger saying, are you kidding me? Go over to your house for dinner? Come over to your house for dinner? Are you crazy? Instead of him having anger and just not wanting to be with them because of that animosity, or instead of Jesus on the other side saying, I'm not going over there for dinner. What do you think? I'm a fool. And, and in self-preservation saying, I'm not going to let you wound me more. I'm not going to spend time with you and let you insult me more or hurt my feelings more. You've done enough damage in my life. Instead, what a revelation of the extent of the love of Jesus. That he would make himself susceptible to more hurt and harm. That he would continue to love, even, hear me, the most difficult people in his life. And you know what? As followers of Jesus, we too are called to exercise an abnormal love. 
We are called to demonstrate an unnatural love for the most difficult people in our lives. Can it remind us of the words of Jesus this morning, Matthew 5, verse 33 and 34? Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Jesus, did you have to say that? <laughs> Do you really mean that? Wait a minute, are you... Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to people who hate you, and pray for God's best for people who spitefully use you and persecute you? Hey, let's be honest, that is absolutely impossible apart from being in fellowship with Jesus. Because he's the source of love. God is love. And apart from being in fellowship with Jesus, who is the source of that kind of love, I can't do that on my own. It's ludicrous to think I could possibly ever begin to come anywhere close to doing it. That is not my natural inclination towards my enemies. When somebody curses me, I want to curse them back. When somebody spitefully uses me, I want to get them back. It's not my natural inclination to do it. It is only through the inspiration of the Spirit of God working in my life that I could ever possibly do that. But yet that's what we're called to as followers of Jesus Christ. And that is, I tell you, what we are able to do through the power of Jesus enabling us to love people in an abnormal way. And like a current that will just blow people away. It will leave them speechless and astonish them. And so many times when we seek to do that by the Lord's help, I tell you, it often works. I remember a few years ago when we were back at Calvary Chapel, York, pastor in the church there, and there was a family who had been in our church for years and years, and they had a son who was about 18, 19 years old at that time, and he had started walking away from the Lord, went back out into the world, and started getting involved in drugs, and was just really just kind of ruining his life, but he still would periodically come around the church. But he would never stay for the worship service. He would just be there prior to the service a little bit, and then he would kind of show up after the service again. And as he would come on the property, our ushers started coming to me saying, you know, Pastor Tony, I think he might actually be using the church to do drug deals. Because his friends would kind of meet him there, and they'd be kind of hanging around our lobby, and they on occasion would see a little something going And I thought, well, Lee, that's pretty smart. I mean, I'm not trying to give him credit, but what a smart way to do a drug deal. Come do it at the church. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, who's going to suspect that? You know what I mean? And, and, and they said, I think he's, and we had one or two guys who were in law enforcement. I think he's actually trying to, to, to deal on occasion. You know, he'd leave something on the bookshelf and somebody go over and take it and put it, and then he'd walk right out the door. So we were recognizing the things. Then he started showing up on the property on occasion and he would just, you know, obviously be under the influence of some substance and he'd walk up and, you know, he talked to me. We kept trying to love him. And we kept trying to love him and be patient with him and, and talk to him. But then we noticed he wasn't coming for worship. And we tried to extend God's grace to him for a season of time. Eventually, Easter Sunday morning, of all mornings, Easter Sunday morning, the, the ushers come and, come and get me and they say, Tony, he, he's out on the patio smoking a bong, a, a, a pot bong. I'm sorry, if, if, those, if you know what that means... That's okay, that was the past. Better not be the present, okay? <laughs> if you don't know what that means, stay innocent towards evil if you're a teenager or an adult. On our patio, at our main entrance on Easter Sunday morning, he's sitting there 
doing drugs as people and families. So I was like, okay, that's it. You know, we, we extended God's grace, obviously. So I went and shows you, I don't trust myself. I went and got my assistant pastor and I said, look, you need to come with me. I need to have a talk with him and I don't trust myself. So can you please come with me for accountability? So I talked to him afterwards and just leveled with him and said, look, we love you. You know the truth. It's obvious you don't want to walk with Jesus anymore. Just, you know what, go in the world. Go, if you want to live in the world, go have your fill. When you're done and you're ready to repent, come back and see me. But in the meantime, there are families coming here. There are children coming here. There are wives and sisters coming here. And I can't have you on the prophecy, on the property under the influence of drugs. And I, I can't trust you. And I don't want you to harm someone. And so you need to stay off the property until you're ready to repent. And I said, look, you're not here to worship at all. You just come, stay off the property. Yeah, I understand. Well, so he left. It was a rather peaceful conversation. That following Wednesday night, he's out front of our main driveway, all in black. His face is painted black, and he's got a sign. On one side, it says, God is dead. On the other side, it says, your pastor's a liar. And he's picketing back and front, forth in front of our church property. God's dead. Your pastor's a liar. And he's, he's picketing me back and forth in, in, in front of our driveway. And everybody's, you know, just... What do we do? What do we do? You know, there, you know, some people like David's men, do you want us to kill him? No, I don't want you to kill him. No, I just want... Other people, what are we going to... So we went into the Wednesday night service, and I opened the service. And I told everybody, look, it's obvious what's taken place. And I opened up to Matthew chapter 5, and I read that passage where Jesus said, look, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute me. And I said, so you know what we're going to do? We're going to do what Jesus told us to so everybody get in the groups and let's just pray for him. And let's just pray for him. And so we prayed for him. And he did it about two more services, two, three more services after that. And we would just pray for him and love him and pray for him and love him. Eventually the, the situation stopped. And I continued, though I did not want to, trust me, there's way more of the story which I won't share here. I continued to love this young man and pray for this young man. And in less than a year, his attitude began to change. He came back to church and he was sitting, worshiping the Lord again. And the love of God, the love of God, was what ultimately was the thing that won his heart over. And it's a difficult thing to do, but it's something that Jesus honors. It overcame Jesus' enemies. And listen, it can overcome yours too. Love people. Love them with an unnatural and a supernatural love and watch what ultimately it does in their lives. Well, as Jesus is present at this dinner, he senses, no doubt, he's God, that this is a test before him. Verse 2 says, Behold, there was a certain man there before him who had dropsy. So here we meet this man now with this undergoing severe troubles in his life. Dropsy is a condition where excess fluid or water builds up in the tissues of the body. It creates swelling. And that buildup of excess fluid in the body is typically caused by kidney problems or could be lung problems or liver or heart problems. Even forms of cancer can cause this fluid buildup in the tissues. And this man's having some kind of underlying condition. A major organ is malfunctioning. As a result, he's swollen up. He has excess fluid buildup maybe in his limbs or his facial area, maybe other areas of the body around the heart or the lungs. And no doubt, probably, he's in substantial pain. He has limited mobility. He's maybe even struggling to breathe a little bit. And verse 7 tells us that all the guests had been invited to that meal. So this guy was invited like Jesus. 
Verse 1 also tells us that they're just there watching Jesus closely. So more than likely, it doesn't take a genius to draw the conclusion that this man was probably invited by the ruler of the Pharisees to be there that day, but he was probably there for nothing more than to purposely be sat in front of Jesus to be like bait to see how Jesus is going to respond on the Sabbath day and what he's going to do with the suffering man. And you can just see how this would unfold, how easy it would be to make this suffering, sick, ill man feel very special as not just a Pharisee, but a ruler of the Pharisee would invite him over his house for a special dinner. And the reality was they really only intended to use this guy for their own selfish agenda. And I'll tell you, as I look at this, how tragically it reminds us of how unloving and uncaring human beings can be in their treatment towards one another. The fact that these Pharisees would have him there as nothing more than bait for Jesus. I'll tell you, human beings, can they not, can be so heartless, can be so cruel, disregarding suffering in people's lives and treating and using people for nothing more than accomplishing our own selfish agenda and purposes. And the lowest of all is when we do nothing more than simply use a person for our own agenda. And you want to drop to the lowest is when it makes it worse is when we just use people who are very vulnerable and who we can tell they're easy to take advantage of. And so we manipulate that and people take advantage of those vulnerable and those who they know are easy to prey upon. And how cruel this man already in that condition that they would have him there, invite him there in this cruelty. Well, Jesus, knowing and sensing all, takes the initiative. And that's why in verse 3 it says he answers and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So Jesus takes initiative. Notice it says Jesus answering. Wait a minute. I didn't see anybody ask a question. Nobody asked a question out loud. But this is God in human flesh. Jesus knew what they were thinking. Jesus knew they had put that guy there just like bait for a trap. So Jesus takes the initiative thinking exactly of what they're going through and what they're questioning. So he just confronts the issue and he just brings it right up. He just calls the elephant in the room. And he says, look. I understand what you're questioning, and he says, so tell me. I know what you're wondering if I'm going to heal this guy. Is it lawful, he says, to heal on the, habit, on the Sabbath? Now again, nowhere does Scripture say it's not lawful on, according to God's Mosaic law to heal on the Sabbath day. The Pharisees and the elders in that day, however, had created all their strict interpretations of what did the Sabbath law mean when it said, thou shalt not work on the Sabbath day. So they, in their interpretations of what that scripture said, thou shalt not work on the Sabbath day, had drawn up extensive long lists of what constituted work, what was work and what wasn't work. And this was the issue here. For example, if someone was severely injured on the Sabbath day, according to the codified traditions of the Pharisees, all that you could do was stop severe bleeding and keep somebody alive to survive, but you could do nothing more to help them recover. You couldn't do anything to additionally alleviate their pain until after the Sabbath day, because if you did, well, then that was medical work. You could spare their life. You could stop the bleeding, tie a tourniquet on, but that was it. You had to wait until after the Sabbath day, because if you did anything more than that, that was work. So in the mind of the Pharisees, from their perspective... 
it is not lawful to heal on the Sabbath because in their mind that constituted work. However, Jesus knew that to heal on the Sabbath did not violate God's word. It only violated the oral and written traditions of the religious leaders who had composed them. And that's why you hear Jesus saying, tell me, is it lawful? Is it? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And notice verse 4 says that they did what? They kept silent. They didn't say anything at all. He's kind of caught them in a catch-22. If they say yes, it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath day, well, now they've blown the trumpet on themselves and proved that they're wrong. And now they have to admit that they're wrong and Jesus is right. If they say no, it's not lawful to heal on the Sabbath out loud, they knew that Jesus would confront them on the grounds of Scripture. Because you say, look, well, your traditions say that, but what does the Word of God say? And they knew that Jesus would esteem Scripture above every spiritual ritual and every religious tradition. So they're silent, and Jesus, therefore, gives the answer by his actions. Notice verse 4, as they're sitting silent, says Jesus took that man suffering and healed him, and then he let him go. The Gospels record seven different times that Jesus healed on the Sabbath day, and it's because Jesus always honored and obeyed Scripture. He may not have always honored man's religious traditions, but the reason is because Jesus esteemed love above all other things. And Jesus always honored the Word of God, and God always moved him to do what was concerning to the heart of God. And here's this sick and suffering man in this condition, death seems imminent, and the love of Jesus, the love of Jesus is what moves Jesus, we see now in verse 4, to heal this guy. And notice that one touch from Jesus upon his life, just one touch of Jesus, his prior condition, which was miserable, was miraculously removed. One encounter with Jesus and Jesus powerfully, instantaneously transforms his entire life. He makes this guy's life brand new. And Jesus relieves the problematic condition and restores his life back to him. And then it says that Jesus, it says there in verse 4, let him go. Jesus heals him. He changes and transforms his life. And then he dismisses him. And he lets him leave. Because this man had suffered enough humiliation and mistreatment. And Jesus, honoring his dignity, heals him. And then he lets him go on his way. And he dismisses him as he continues to deal with the Pharisees. Now again, shows me Jesus did not do this miracle because he wanted to get something from this guy. Jesus healed and helped this man in his suffering condition because he wanted to lavish the love of God upon his life. Again, Romans 2 tells us that it is the goodness of God that leads a man to repentance. And as Jesus healed him, Jesus just let him go, but I tell you this, and I could be speculating and be wrong, but I guarantee from my own perspective that that guy more than likely probably went off and started praising God wherever he went because he knew what his condition was prior to that day and how long he had been in that condition. And he knew that he had no power to change his own condition. And he was fully aware of exactly what had just happened in his life and how Jesus had just transformed him miraculously and instantaneously. And out of the overflow of that gratitude and appreciation, I'm certain he went off and began to worship and to praise God because he knew what Jesus had just done for him. And look, let's not take lightly what that actually shows us there. 
the reality that a miracle happened. An instantaneous life change happened in one moment with one man encountering the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus changed his life. And Jesus is the same today. He's alive today. He rose from the dead. And Jesus still has the same love for struggling and suffering people in all types of various conditions in this life. And Jesus has the same power to heal and to help and to miraculously change people's lives. He has the same heart intention and he has the same capability. And this morning, listen, the Lord is aware of whatever condition you are struggling with this morning. There may not be another soul on this earth that knows the condition that you're struggling with, that understands what has got you in bondage, that, that understands the condition that you're struggling with and your emotions or your mind or spiritually. But I tell you this, Jesus knows the condition that you're in and this same Jesus Christ who miraculously transformed that man's life rose from the dead. He's alive this morning and he's present and he can do the same. He can heal any condition. He can resolve any problem. And I say that this morning, that perhaps today the Lord Jesus wants to touch your life. Maybe today you ought to be encouraged in faith to simply ask God, Lord Jesus, would you take hold of me and heal me? Lord, would you take hold of my life and do what I can't do? Lord, would you do it for me? I believe that you can, Lord. I see what you've done in others' lives. And Lord, would you, you know my condition. Would you do it? Would you help me? Would you free me? Would you liberate me? Change my life? And Jesus has the power to do such. Well, verse 5, notice after he answers them, he then spoke again saying, Which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately, Jesus says, pull him out on the Sabbath? And they, notice, could not answer him regarding these things. So after astonishing everybody, with his amazing love, with his power to heal. Again, what do we see Jesus doing? Using this as a springboard to reach out to who? The religious leaders again. Once again, he's reaching out to them. He reasons with them in verse 5 after he dismisses the man. He now starts to talk again to the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the lawyers, and he says to them, hey, question, which of you, if you have an animal and it falls into a pit, he says, immediately, don't you on the Sabbath day pull it out immediately even though it still is the Sabbath day? Now again, Jesus is just using logic. There were wells in that day which were often just holes in the ground and many times they weren't clearly marked. So as an animal would wander around, it was very possible that it could accidentally just fall down into one of these unmarked wells and it would get stuck. And when that would happen, plowing animals, that was like their tractor, okay? That was like their John Deere, your donkey, your ox was very important in an agrarian culture. So they would immediately respond and they would never leave an animal that was stuck down in a pit to see if it would survive overnight. And then, well, if it's still there in the morning after the Sabbath is over, then we'll pull out. They would never do that. They would immediately respond whether it was the Sabbath or not. And why? For two reasons. Number one, because that animal was extremely important. It had great value and importance. And number two, their natural compassion made them inclined to want to help when they saw this animal struggling and suffering. And Jesus asked this question. He's reasoning, saying, look, what I'm doing here is really just the same. 
People have tremendous importance to God. People have tremendous value to God, way more important than an animal and way more important than just a religious tradition or ritual. And Jesus, being the love of God manifest, is always moved with compassion and love when he sees somebody struggling. And if Jesus sees somebody suffering or struggling, when he's in the presence of suffering, the automatic tendency of Jesus in the presence of any suffering is he's inclined to want to help. Jesus can't be in the presence of struggling and suffering and not be inclined to want to help, to do something to assist. Because Jesus operated under the highest law, and the highest law is the law of love. And that law of love governed Jesus' heart and made Jesus do the things that he did. And that's why in verse 6 it says they just could not answer him regarding these things. Jesus forced them to realize that they did not have any sufficient reason to not want to acknowledge what he was doing was right. And because of that, they were left speechless. They discovered, though they were looking for a flaw in Jesus, they couldn't find one. And they never would because he was sinless. And because of that, they found themselves without even words by his authority and the love he demonstrated. You know, this story, to me, really reminds us of two very valuable things about Jesus. First of all, that Jesus is perfect. And second of all, that Jesus is powerful. Jesus is perfect. They were trying to find fault, but Jesus is the sinless Son of God. He never failed. He never faltered. He was tempted in all points as we are, but yet he was without sin. Jesus is perfect. People can try and find flaws and reasons why they shouldn't follow Jesus Christ. It's a vain waste of time. Jesus is perfect. And Jesus is powerful. He has power to help and to heal and to change lives miraculously and instantaneously to transform people who are willing to receive his touch upon their life. And though the story reminds us Jesus is perfect and Jesus is powerful, communion, as we celebrated this morning, really is a time as we pause to remember in comparison to Jesus, who's perfect and powerful, in comparison to Jesus, guess what I am? I'm imperfect and I'm powerless. I'm imperfect. I'm full of sins and failures and faults and mistakes and sin causes many problems and all kinds of conditions in our lives. And just like this man who had this condition that was causing him to struggle and suffer and he couldn't change his condition, that's like all of us. We all sin, fall short of the glory of God and we continue to struggle with our sin nature and sin causes all kinds of problems for us. And it creates all kinds of conditions that aren't good in our lives. And we're imperfect, nothing like Jesus. And in the same way, Jesus is powerful and we're powerless. I realize I got a problem and I realize I got a condition, but guess what? I can't change my condition. I've never been able to. I can't fix my problem with sin. I can't remove the penalty of my own sin and I can't even overcome the power of sin in my life. But guess what? I can pause and reflect by faith upon the reality that the overflowing love of Jesus caused him to come to my rescue. And Jesus came to this earth and he lived the perfect life to satisfy the requirement for God's standard for heaven because I'm imperfect and I can't live that life and you can't live that life. Jesus came and lived the perfect life for us and Jesus came and overcame not only the penalty but the power of sin so that as we plug into the person of Jesus Christ, he says, look, I, can't, I won't just cancel the penalty of your sin. I can overcome for you too the power of sin if you let me 
rule within you, I can overrule the power of sin that's trying to control your life. And that's why we celebrate in communion what Jesus has accomplished for us upon his death and his resurrection. Let's bow our heads and pray together. We'll have our musicians come forward and we'll enter back into a time of worship. Father, thank you for this time to study your word. And as we enter back into song, Lord, just in a moment of worship, Lord, we want to prepare our hearts. We want to make sure that we're ready, Lord, even to receive communion in a way that's pleasing to you. So, Lord, receive now our worship, we pray. Prepare our hearts that we might receive in a manner that our hearts are ready to appreciate what the elements of communion represent, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Help us, Lord, now to express our love towards